Here in Wyoming, the current home of Dispatches HQ, there are billboards declaring that Wyoming's wild horses are in danger. And then my wife said, you should do your next episode on wild horses. So I started researching, and what I found out was that surprisingly, wild horses and their management, much like coyotes and wolves, is a pretty controversial issue. So that's what we're going to be talking about on this episode, wild horses. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. So, first of all, if you want to get technical, and I do, there are no wild horses in North America, at least not anymore. So, let's get into some horse history. Horses did originate in North America about 55 million years ago. By the end of the late Pleistocene, about 11,000 years ago, there were two lineages of horses in North America. The stout-legged horses, which are closely related to modern horses, and the stilt-legged horses, which don't have any modern relatives. That's because the end of the late Pleistocene also was the end of the last glacial period and pretty much the end of horses in North America. The stilt-legged horses went extinct, and the stout-legged horses were extirpated from North America, most likely by a combination of changing climate and newly arrived hungry humans hunting them for food. So it's estimated that truly wild horses were absent from North America for about 7,000 years or so before Christopher Columbus even made his infamous voyage. What we do have in North America are feral horses, commonly known as mustangs. The difference is that, quote, wild, unquote, horses here in North America are descended from domesticated horses that escaped or were released into the wild long ago. And this fact actually fuels some of the controversy surrounding these animals, which I'll get into in a little bit. Now, Columbus brought domestic horses from Spain to the West Indies on his second voyage in 1493. They were brought to the mainland by Cortez in 1519, and by 1525, he had enough to create a nucleus of horse breeding in Mexico. In what is now the American Southwest, horse breeding began in 1598, when a fellow named Juan de Oñante founded the Spanish province of Santa Fe de Nuevo, Mexico, which would eventually become part of the states of Texas and New Mexico. Starting with 75 horses from his original expedition, Oñante expanded his herd to 800, and from there the horse population increased rapidly. Now, Spanish laws prohibited Native Americans from riding horses, but the colonists used indigenous people as servants, and they learned horse-handling skills. Many horses were lost by the Spanish colonists because, well, they didn't keep them in fenced enclosures, so they just wandered off where they were captured by Native people. Colonists also traded horses to Native Americans for food or other items. Now, initially, these horses were probably eaten, but as individuals with horse-handling skills fled Spanish control, sometimes along with trained horses, the Native American people readily integrated the horse into their culture. They quickly adopted the horse as a primary means of transportation, and horses replaced dogs as pack animals. 
This integration changed indigenous cultures in terms of warfare, trade, and even diet. The ability to run down bison allowed some tribes to abandon agriculture for hunting from horseback. By 1659, Spanish settlements were being raided by native tribes for horses, and in the 1660s, some tribes were trading human captives for horses. The Pueblo Revolt of 1680 resulted in large numbers of horses coming into the hands of native people, the largest one-time influx in history. And from there, the Pueblo traded horses to other tribes, and horses spread across the continent. Now, nobody really knows how many Mustangs once roamed North America. The best estimates are that the population peaked between the late 1700s and early to mid-1800s at anywhere between 2 and 5 million. In the early 1900s, thousands were rounded up for use in the Spanish-American War and World War I. By 1920, a guy named Bob Brislon, who worked as a packer for the U.S. government, recognized that the original Mustangs were disappearing, and he started the effort to preserve them, ultimately establishing the Spanish Mustang Registry. By 1930, the vast majority of free-roaming horses were found west of the Continental Divide, confined to public lands managed by the General Land Office, with an estimated population between 50,000 and 150,000. The Taylor Grazing Act of 1934 established the United States Grazing Service, which was tasked with managing livestock grazing on public land. In 1946, the General Land Office and the Grazing Service combined to become the Bureau of Land Management. The BLM and the Forest Service were both committed to removing feral horses from the lands they administered. By the 1950s, the Mustang population was estimated to be just 25,000. But in 1959, Mustangs gained some protection with the first free-roaming horse protection laws. These laws prohibited the use of motor vehicles, which included aircraft, in the hunting and capture of feral horses and burros. It also prohibited the practice of poisoning water holes, which was not uncommon and, yes, as horrible a practice as it sounds. Mustangs gained further protection with the passage of the Wild and Free-Roaming Horses and Burrows Act of 1971. This law provided for protection of certain previously established herds of horses and burrows. It mandated the BLM to oversee the protection and management of free-roaming herds on its lands and gave the U.S. Forest Service similar authority on national forest lands. A census completed in conjunction with the passage of this act found that there were approximately 17,300 Mustangs, plus an additional 6,000 wild burrows on BLM-administered land, and just over 2,000 more Mustangs on national forest land. Okay, fast forward to today, where do we stand? The BLM has established what they call Herd Management Areas, or HMAs, which are the places where Mustangs will be sustained as free-roaming populations. More than half of the free-roaming Mustangs in North America are in Nevada, which features them on its state quarter, with other significant populations in California, Oregon, Utah, Montana, and Wyoming. Now, the BLM has determined that the appropriate number of free-roaming Mustangs across all the HMAs is somewhere around 26,700. Now, this presents a problem, because as of 2019, there was an estimated 88,000 Mustangs. 
Now, I'm no mathematician, but 88,000 is a lot more than 26,700. And at least five years ago, another 45,000 were in holding facilities. So let's explore some of the controversies that surround Mustangs. First of all, due in part to the prehistory of horses in North America, there's controversy about the role Mustangs have in the ecosystem and the impact they have on the environment. Some potential impacts of free-roaming Mustangs that have been identified include soil erosion and destruction of native plants as a result of grazing and trampling, fouling of water holes, the spread of weeds and disease, competition with native species for food and shelter, and the collapse of burrows of smaller animals. But I think really what this controversy boils down to is mustangs versus livestock. Livestock have the same potential environmental impacts, but mustangs compete with livestock for pasture, especially during droughts. So it's a matter of priority in the use of public lands, particularly in relation to livestock. Mustang supporters advocate for the BLM to rank Mustangs higher in priority than it currently does. They argue that too little forage is allocated to Mustangs relative to cattle and sheep. On the other side of the debate, ranchers and others affiliated with the livestock industry favor a lower priority, arguing that their livelihoods and rural economies are threatened because they depend on public lands for foraging their livestock. But even the debate as to how much mustangs and cattle compete for forage is multifaceted. The ecological niche that horses evolved to inhabit is characterized by poor quality vegetation. Mustang advocates assert that most current mustang herds live in arid areas which cattle can't fully utilize because of a lack of water sources. Mustangs can cover vast distances to find food and water, ranging five to ten times farther than cattle to find forage, and therefore finding it in more inaccessible areas. In addition, horses are what's called a hindgut fermenter, which ultimately means that they extract less energy from a given amount of forage, but they digest faster and make up the difference in efficiency by increasing their consumption rate. So by eating in greater quantities, Horses obtain adequate nutrition from poorer forage than ruminants like cattle can, meaning they can survive in areas where cattle would starve. But while the BLM assumes that mustangs eat about the same amount of forage as a cow and calf pair, studies of horse grazing patterns show that they consume closer to one and a half times as much. In addition, the best modern rangeland management practices recommend removing all livestock during the growing season to maximize regrowth of the forage. Year-round grazing by any non-native ungulate will degrade it, particularly horses, whose incisors allow them to graze plants very close to the ground, inhibiting recovery. It's a lot easier to remove cattle during the growing season than it is with free-roaming mustangs. Yet another viewpoint is that Mustangs re-inhabited an ecological niche that was vacated when the original horses went extinct in North America. So some people assert that horses are a reintroduced native species that should be legally classified as wild rather than feral and managed as wildlife. This native species argument centers on the premise that the horses extirpated in the Americas 10,000 years ago are closely related to the modern horses which were reintroduced. 
So the debate centers in part on the question of whether these modern horses evolved to be adapted to the ecosystem they left behind as it changed without them in the intervening 10,000 years. And some supporters of Mustangs on public lands assert that even though they're not a native species, Mustangs are a culturally significant part of the historical American West, and they acknowledge that some form of population control is probably needed. So going back to that current population of 88,000, and assuming that a population of 26 to 27,000 strikes a good balance between protection of both horses, environment, and grazing interests, there's the question of how to manage the Mustang populations in the first place. Management is a huge challenge because herd sizes can grow by 20% or more every year. There are few predators in the modern era capable of preying on healthy adult mustangs, and for the most part, predators that are capable of limiting the growth of feral mustang herds aren't found in the same areas as the modern feral herds. Although wolves and mountain lions are both known to prey on horses, and in theory could control population growth, in practice, relying on predation just doesn't work. Even historically, wolves were rare in the Great Basin where the vast majority of mustangs currently roam, and they're not there at all today. Mountain lions have been known to prey on mustangs, but only in small numbers, in limited areas, and primarily on foals. So we're back to the question of what to do. The BLM captures mustangs regularly, but again, the methods used are often controversial. The BLM allows the use of trucks, ATVs, helicopters, and firearms to chase the horses into holding pens. Now this can result in exhaustion, serious injuries, or even deaths to the horses. Bait traps are another common way mustangs are corralled, usually with hay or water being left in a camouflage pen with a trigger system to close the gates behind the horses. Another less destructive method uses a tame horse, often called a Judas horse, which has been trained to lead mustangs into a pen or corral. Once the mustangs are herded into an area near the holding pen, the Judas horse is released. Its job is then to move to the head of the herd and lead them into the confined area. Captured horses are freeze-branded on the left side of the neck by the BLM with a system of symbols that can't be altered. These brands include the year of the horse's birth and an identification number. Now, since 1978, captured horses have been offered for adoption to individuals or groups willing and able to provide humane long-term care. For decades, there was an adoption fee of $125, but in March 2019, faced with severe overpopulation, the BLM began to pay people $1,000 to adopt a Mustang. Adopted horses are still protected under the Act for one year after adoption, at which point the adopter can obtain title to the horse. Horses that weren't adopted were supposed to be humanely euthanized, but instead of euthanizing excess horses, the BLM began to keep them in long-term holding. Remember those 45,000 extra horses? But this is an expensive alternative, which costs taxpayers up to $50,000 per horse over its lifetime. In December of 2004, Montana Senator Conrad Burns attached a rider amending the Wild and Free-Roaming Horse and Burrow Act to an appropriation bill in the Senate. 
This modified the adoption program to allow unlimited sale of captured horses that were more than 10 years old or that were offered unsuccessfully for adoption at least three times. Now, since 1978, there had been specific language in the act forbidding the BLM from selling the horses to anyone that would take them to slaughter. But the Burns Amendment removed that language. In order to prevent horses being sold to slaughter, the BLM implemented policies limiting sales and requiring buyers to certify they will not take the horses to slaughter. Now, slaughtering horses for food in the United States is illegal, but in other countries, including Japan, Russia, China, and Argentina, eating horse meat is not that uncommon. According to the BLM, it's illegal for Mustangs to be sold for slaughter, but according to animal rights groups, it's still happening. Many horses, both feral and domestic, are sold to buyers in Canada and Mexico and end up on the meat market in other countries. In 2018, it's estimated that over 81,500 horses, some of them Mustangs, met this fate. So, unsurprisingly, this practice is controversial. You know, Americans balk at the idea of eating horse meat because we see horses as pets or companion animals, but there's plenty of animals that we do eat, so I kind of think it's best not to judge too harshly. Something about glass houses and throwing rocks. Now, there have been many efforts to try and increase the number of horses adopted, like Extreme Mustang Makeover, a promotional competition that gives trainers 100 days to train 100 Mustangs so they can be adopted through auctions. But still, adoptions don't come close to finding homes for all the excess Mustangs. In 2017, it was expected that 10,000 wild Mustang foals would be born, but only 2,500 horses were expected to be adopted. Alternatives to roundups for population control, including birth control by PZP injection, culling, and natural regulation, which is just code for dying of natural causes. But it also means choosing to let Mustangs enter into the boom and bust cycle that many other animals face, thriving when resources are good, starving to death when they're scarce. There's no easy solutions to controlling the exponential growth of Mustang populations. Any solution is probably going to be met with resistance from somebody. But to quote the article Mustangs in Crisis from westernhorsemen.com, until this trend is reversed, two of the greatest treasures of the American West, wild horses and the public lands they roam, face an appalling future. And that's where we'll end today's episode. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe or leave a comment. Other ways to support the podcast, tell a friend to listen and then check out our Patreon page and become a patron. Subscriptions start at just $5 a month. You can find all the information on the various subscription levels at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd rather make a one-time donation, you can do it through PayPal. Dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and how to contact me if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. Check out our merch store at cafepress.com forward slash dispatchesfromtheforest and get some Dispatches from the Forest merchandise. We've got lots of stuff. Put it on your Christmas wish list. For additional content, check out Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty.
The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission. Bill, what? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K.